Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Lucia and I are delighted to welcome to this podcast on Theater of the Oppressed, Dr. Teresa Ronquilio and Tika Sears. Last August, I attended their virtual workshop on using Theater of the Oppressed in online courses and immediately invited them to have this conversation with us. Dr. Ronquilio, a second-generation Filipina-American, has degrees in social work and is the founder of Embody Change. She is an affiliate faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University's Inclusive Excellence Program that is, quote, rooted at the intersection of arts, anti-oppression, and multi-level change. She is a theater of the oppressed facilitator and practitioner of the liberatory arts. Teresa describes herself, I am a storyteller. I enjoy telling stories about my complex identities and intersectionalities shaped by space, place, and time. She instigated and led the workshop Shifting Stories through Theater of the Oppressed last December at the Richmond, Virginia Story House. Tika O. Sears is a theater director and performing artist in Seattle and is the artistic director and founder of the Memory War Theater and Theater for Change, formerly the Interactive Theater as Pedagogy Project. She was a Fulbright artist-in-residence in Indonesia for two years. On our website, we are providing some links, including the 2019 interactive theater piece, quote, A Place Called School, that was created at the University of Washington College of Education. Tika and Teresa work with diverse academic departments, even academic deans, using theater to practice disrupting oppressions and imagine transformative possibilities. Embodied is a key term here. Through theater pedagogies, they invite participants to bring their whole selves into the learning process. So in this podcast, listeners will gain insight into ways to be embodied in the virtual spaces of pandemic classes along with practices of building community and envisioning social change. Both Teresa and Tika make real in their work Augusto Boal's famous dictum, the theater itself is not revolutionary, it is rehearsal for the revolution. So let's get started. Welcome, Teresa and Tika, to Nothing Never Happens. I'll start with the first question. Um, what led each of you to do Theater of the Oppressed and to Augusto Boal's work and to work with each other? We um, have been collaborating for many years, since 2008. And um, my background is that I have been a theater artist and um, both as an actor and as a director and someone specifically interested in storytelling, oral histories, um, docudrama, um, and physical theater for many, many years, and had also always been interested in social justice theater. And um, this is what led me to be interested in Theater of the Oppressed and Augusto Boal's work. And I'm gonna let Teresa describe her background. Thanks, Tika. So I do not have a 
academic or professional background in theater or performance or acting. My background is in social work. So that has uh, been my anchor and my core for the last several years. Um, and the way I met Tika in 2007, 2008, was I was, uh, it was my last year of graduate school. I was getting my doctorate in um, the School of Social Work at University of Washington. And uh, my job was to be the program coordinator for a Ford Foundation funded project called Difficult Dialogues. And the project that I worked for focused on engaging Southeast Asian American pluralism in Seattle. So that was a multi-pronged project that uh, encompassed new team taught courses, um, student projects and dialogues. And it was with the courses, the course, the course development where I met Tika because she was hired to come in and work with the faculty who are teaching these new courses to bring in some arts, to bring in some critical um, thinking about how we could integrate arts and performance, puppetry, theater, all different kinds of modalities to create more innovative, interactive, engaging courses. And so since I was the program coordinator of, on that project, she and I got to work together. And so that was the first time that we met. We um, became fast friends and we worked together that year. And then the year after we received more funding to continue those conversations, those critical community conversations. And she and I developed and co-taught a year long course that included grad students and undergrad students to um, continue the exploration of community stories. They did oral history interviewing. Um, our students created a one hour long um, um, theater piece that, that took some of the stories from the community members and leaders that they interviewed and we performed it in front of a large audience. And then afterwards we had a community dialogue. Um, and so that was, that was more of a devised theater performance. So that's kind of, that's kind of our foundation. And then if you want to take it away, Tika, because then Tika, you, you had your, you have a theater mind. So you were looking at different opportunities for us to, to continue our work. Yeah. Thanks, Teresa. Yeah. In that, course what was so valuable to all of us was that the students became the storytellers in our class that their stories and that was this, um, you know engaging Southeast Asian American pluralism is saying there's so many students in our courses that have these rich histories and they want to explore their histories that's where they're taking some of these courses so how can we give them the space to investigate and lead where their knowledge where they're seeking knowledge and um, as Teresa and I had the great pleasure of working with this amazing group, some of many of which we're still in touch with um, students, and the play was really beautiful. We wanted to be telling stories, and um, this was super valuable in what leading us to the next thing, which was I saw this opportunity to do a training with Jeannie LaFrance, who ran a group called the Illumination Project um, in Portland at, um, what was the name of the institution, Teresa? 
Uh, Portland Community College. Yes, thank you for that reminder. Um, and um, there was, this was an opportunity. They were also a funded Difficult Dialogues project. So we were able to read about their work throughout the process and see the great work they were doing. And they had a training opportunity for a week-long intensive. And I had always been interested in Augusto Boal's work. I had the book Games for Actors and Non-Actors as a young acting student and as a young teaching artist. I frequently referred to it, but I never really had engaged with the work directly. And I said, hey, Teresa, let's, what do you think? Let's go to Portland for a week um, and do this training. And um, she was game. And I would say for me, it was a really transformational week. Um, and one story really stands out for me was that we were on one of the first days, we were being introduced to the very, you know, kind of classic Boal forum theater performance of the bus stop or the bus, I think it's the bus. And it depicts a quick performance of a person on a bus who is being harassed by another person on the bus. And there is a, a bystander and the bus driver and um, the audience is invited to step in and make a change. And um, as either, I think in that context, you could step in as the protagonist or, um, you know, Illumination Project um, also gave the opportunity to step in as a bystander. And I remember personally kind of tears coming to my eyes of watching, um, and Teresa knows me, tears frequently come to my eyes, but um, but watching and just feeling someone saying out loud words that I wish I had said as a young woman on a bus when I've been harassed or in many moments of my life, um, to say the words out loud that I had longed to say or to have someone else say those words that I had longed to say kind of blew my mind. And that was like the opening of the week. Teresa, what stories from that week do you remember? I don't remember specific stories except for just learning all kinds of skills, um, you know, being introduced for the first time to games, to different warm-ups, to uh, image theater um, and forum theater, and um, and being able to practice those intensively for a week, and also learning about the curriculum. Um, that they developed at Portland Community College because Illumination Project is a student course where students take this course and they learn these skills and they do forum theater performances for audiences. And they're the ones that are also producing knowledge and mining their vulnerable stories and sharing them as a, as a very transformative teaching tool. And um, so, so that's what I remember because when we, when Tika and I went back to University of Washington, we were so inspired that we decided to start our own program. And that's what we did. Um, I was, at the time I was working at the Center for Teaching and Learning. I mean, because I think that, you know, that, that experience taught us that interactive theater in theater of the oppressed is impactful, is an impactful and transformative teaching tool that sticks with people that people will remember because they are hearing and watching and observing and experiencing stories and getting them into their bodies. And that is powerful learning. 
So when we got back to University of Washington, we started our program and we piloted learning communities and we didn't know what we were doing and we made mistakes, but we just kept doing it because we were passionate about this work and we were passionate about bringing it to the educational community. And that morphed into um, the program now called Theater of Theater for Change UW, which Tika um, still runs. So that was, it's a long journey, but I think that, um, and we've done different things along the way, but I think at, you know, ultimately it's all about, you know, learning these um, revolutionary <laughs> pedagogical tools that really do work. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and you talked about how you, you know, you start with uh, warm-ups, image theater. Can you can you say some specifics of how you would get a group of um, people who are doing it for the first time, who may be a little resistant to it, say, faculty in higher education <laughs> uh, or undergraduate students? Um, you know, how do you engage them and get them to share this passion that you have? Um, I would say that I think an important starting point is to um, start off talking with some community agreements and community practices. Um, and we usually start with a list that we bring to the, to the setting. And then if we have time or you know, intentionally carve out time because it is part of the process, we might invite people to add to those community agreements. So the ones that we tend to talk about are, you know, first of all, framing that, you know, theater of the oppressed in its, in its like basic definition is theater for social justice and change. And um, that's what we'll be doing today and with that, we will be engaging the personal, the interpersonal, and the systemic. All of that, all of those are important. We can't just focus on one um, because oppression doesn't operate on just one level. Um, that everything is an invitation. Um, take care of yourself, take care of your body, make adaptations sit stuff out if you want to actively observe. We're not going to make you do things that you don't want to do. Um, and uh, we use invitational language throughout our facilitation. We, we say, I mean, pretty much we say, we invite you to engage in this warm-up. You know, I invite you to share a story with the person sitting next to you. It's so everything is um, voluntary and um, open. And you can share what feels right for you and true for you in the moment. So I think that's an important, um, that's an important tone setting practice that we do. Um, Another one that we often say is, you know, we will be doing movement today. We will be doing some performance. This type of learning might be new for some people. We kindly invite you to engage and take risks. But at the same time, if you need to take a pass on something, please do so. 
And after we do community norms and community agreements, um, then we frequently will start with a name game. We'll preview one of those with you later today or maybe soon. Um, and and we, we purposefully build in things that are fun and low risk at the beginning. I think this is such an important part of um, introducing folks to this work is that sometimes folks are introduced to a very complex or deep or heavy activity very early on in the process. And I think the scaffolding, Teresa and I work a lot with the scaffolding and we make adjustments to our agenda um, to think of how do we slowly build the trust in a group? How do we slowly cultivate um, trust some vulnerable opportunities for vulnerability, opportunities to ask questions, to laugh together. At what point is laughter um, taking place in our workshop? And where do we want to introduce that early on? At what point is storytelling being um, you know, given a uh, highlight and opportunities for storytelling and sharing about our own identities or something personal about us. Um, and then where are the places where we can start to have some collaboration happening, right? So those things are always really important to us. And we very consciously think about the scaffolding of how we build those things, even when it's in a one hour, two hour workshop or a quarter long or term long course, right? How have you all adapted to the Zoom world that we are in? I mean, so much of what you've just answered is about the importance of embodiment, moving our bodies. And I, when I hear feedback from students and certainly in my own body, I feel um, that Zoom can be so alienating. Um, not only in the sense of sitting and looking at a screen, but I hear I hear people talk about like the the tyranny of looking at your own face all the time and seeing it staring back at you and the body checking that can happen and how um, how tough that can be. So I'm curious about, and maybe this is the moment where we where we do something, do an activity that isn't just y'all answering the question together. Um, we'll leave that up to you all to lead us into that. Um, but yeah, Zoom, disembodied learning, online teaching, how does that go for you? So I, I want to say a little bit about um, my consulting practice, which is, which is called Embody Change. And I founded Embody Change uh, last year. And I ramped up my programming and workshops last summer. So all of my programming has been online Zoom interactive workshops. And from that experience, um, I can tell you that um, we've I've had we've had success from participants saying you know you know this workshop on that's focused on using embodied games and fun and connection building um, using um, theater and improv and other sorts of like reflective and creative methods was one of the best workshops I've ever taken because it showed me that community building can still happen even though we're on an online environment. And I think the important um, opportunity and challenge is to start slow 
and to build up and to recognize that one of the first things you do in an online setting, even if you're with people that you know, is to do low stakes games, low stakes, you know, like community building activities, which we'll, we'll do one, we'll demonstrate one. And, um, and you can still move, like, you know, we invite people to change their position. We do invite people to do some embodied games, maybe in breakout groups. We'll put you in a breakout group and, and we'll tell you what to do with your partner. There's a lot of theater games that we've actually been able to do in breakout groups. Um, theater of the oppressed games that we've been able to do in breakout groups and they've, and they've worked really well. So um, I, th I, I think it's interesting that the company that I started is primarily is like all online. Um, eventually, I would like my I would like our programming and our workshops to be both and to be online, and um, you know in the community when when we're ready to do so safely. But but this but you know the current situation we're in provides this really important opportunity to adapt um, and to still provide opportunities for learners and students to get up out of their seat. Um, and so why don't we, why don't we just demonstrate something, you know, let's bring it to life. And we're going to do this using stories. Again, like going back to the question um, or the, you know, like the importance of stories and storytelling, because stories are knowledge. People remember stories. Stories are a point of connection. So Tika, do you want to um, kind of start us off? Sure, thanks, Teresa. So um, as Teresa mentioned, this is an opportunity for us to reflect on some of our own stories and in particular stories related to our own names. So um, this activity is called Name Story. And um, you could do this in a variety of ways and we can maybe talk a little bit about that after we do it. But the idea is my first invitation is um, to move away from where you currently are. So change your body position. If that's standing and if you're seated, that might be one possibility. If you're lying down, you could sit up. There's a lot of possibilities. Um, but change your current position. And then start moving your body, just moving, feeling your body in space. It was one place before and now it's someplace else. And new feelings or thoughts might come in because you've changed your body position. That's part of what we're trying to get at. Um, Augusto Boal talks about demechanizing the body, right? That's what we want to do. We want to demechanize the patterns that we're in all the time. So while you're moving, we encourage you to start reflecting on and thinking about one of your names. It could be a given name. It could be a chosen name. First, middle, last, a nickname, a family name, or another chosen name that you go by and start thinking of which story related to that you might tell. If you had about 30 seconds or so to tell a quick story about that name, what comes to mind? What feelings? And start to let your movement 
tell that story. What part of that story is interesting to you? What part makes you feel connected or makes you feel something? So explore that and slowly, as you reflect on the story, start to engage in a gesture related to that story, a gesture that crystallizes that story for you, something about that story. What gesture might that be? How does that feel in the body? What does it look like? What are the different parts of your body doing? What level are you on? What is your face doing? What are your muscles doing? What are your leg muscles doing? Your toes. So what is that gesture? And once you have that gesture, um, do it a few times and think about what part of this story are you going to tell out loud? What part do you feel comfortable with the group you're with sharing? Because you always have the choice to share whatever story or whatever part of the story you wish. So um, I'm going to model this a little bit um, in that I'm going to describe what I'm doing, being that this is a podcast, but this is an, also an opportunity for us to imagine what we might do with our students in audio only spaces. Um, my description is that I have my right hand palm facing towards my face and my hand is in front of my face and I'm using my right hand and I'm making a semicircle across my from my face to my belly a semicircle almost like a C and I'm wiping my face and my torso and after I wipe my face and torso with my hand I'm using my two hands to the right side of my body and I'm stuffing those two hands into a bag and I'm closing up that bag. So I'm wiping my face and torso and then I'm taking whatever I wiped off and putting it, stuffing it inside a bag and tying it up. And the story that I'm gonna share related to my name is my last name Sears. My last name Sears um, was a name that my grandfather, who came from Russia as a young immigrant, he was the age of 11, they arrived in the US and the border officials or whatever at the time immigration officials asked, um, what's your name? And he said, their family said Zirkus. And they said, we'll call you Sears, here's your paperwork. And to me, that was an erasure of that past name, that past history being erased. And then that name being stuffed into a bag and tied up and forgotten for all this time. So I know nothing about that name. I'm Sears, but I know nothing about the name behind it. That's my story today. And I'm wondering if um, Teresa might want to tell a story. Sure, thank you. Um, so the gesture that I'm doing is that my right arm is making a chopping motion on my left hand. So it's, it looks like I'm a butcher or somebody chopping wood. I'm just repetitively chopping the air with my right hand. And my name story is also about my last name. So uh, my last name is Ronquillo. Um, I am Filipina American. My last name is actually Spanish, um, and the Spanish pronunciation is Ronquillo. I prefer the 
Filipino pronunciation. And there's a story behind that, a quick story behind that. I had pronounced my last name the Spanish way for many, many, many years. And then when I got to graduate school, I met uh, somebody in my cohort who also happened to be Filipino American, which was awesome. And when she heard me pronounce my last name Ronquillo, she looked at me kind of funny. And she said, why are you pronouncing your last name like that? Isn't it Ronquillo? And I'll be honest, like I felt embarrassed and kind of shamed. I felt a little shame, but I got over it really quickly and I thought about what she said. So I now prefer to pronounce my name, Ronquillo, as my way of cutting off colonial ties to Spain and my um, anti-colonial resistance and how I pronounce my last name. Thank you for listening. And I'm wondering if Tina or Lucia would like to share a story and gesture. Well, I can, well, you go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I can share mine. My, my gesture was both hands full and bringing them toward myself and my mouth in particular because my last name Pippin uh, is in England both an apple and a cheese. And I discovered this uh, probably in my 20s to my delight because there are not many Pippins except on Broadway and in uh, Lord of the Rings. And um, so uh, imagining the, the people who created that uh, and those who left in the 1600s and came to um, Jamestown as indentured servants, William and maybe a Matthew, we're not real sure, um, but that, that name associated with really, um, you know, wonderful bounties of the earth. Thanks. Lucia, you had something. All right. So my gesture was both pushing something away and then gathering something back up. And I was using my left and right hand to push to my left and then gather back to my chest. And then I would turn around and push to my right and gather back in. And that's about um, both my first and last name, Lucia Holsether. So Lucia is a name that is very common within my family, but not common in the world. Um, so my grandmother, my cousin, my um, aunt, everybody's named Lucia. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's something that's both very distinct. I don't know a lot of people outside my family named Lucia, but I know a ton of people in my family named Lucia. So that feels like a sort of distinguishing and affiliative kind of, um, kind of name. My last name, Holsether, is my dad's last name. My mom has a different last name than my dad. They're still married. Um, and my they alternated last names with me and my brothers. So my brother has a different last name than me, which was one way that we denied being siblings um, in, <laughs> in going through school. He had my mom's last name. I had my dad's last name. Um, I had a first name from my mom's side of the family. He was named after my dad. So um, in both senses, I think my, my first and last name feels like both something that's very distinguishing, but also something that ties me, um, that, that anchors me. Hence my gesture. Thank you everyone for engaging in that activity. Um, 
I always find out something new about the people that I'm working with when we do that activity. Um, and this is our first time doing it in podcast form, but I think um, I invite folks that are listening to to try this out in the context that you teach and facilitate. And I think what's fun about this is that whether if you did this activity um, in the beginning of the first time meeting folks, you might find out one set of stories. Um, and then if you did this later in the term or later in the time that you spend with a group of people, um, you might, and after some more deeper conversations, you might find out a whole different set of stories on deeper level of stories. So this um, can both be a low stakes activity, but also be a very high stakes activity in terms of what stories we reveal. And the groups that we're in and the context we're in might give us um, the, the feeling to share something deep or to keep our deep stories close to us and share something that's further away from our hearts. Oh, well, that was wonderful, especially given uh, many of my students are not able to turn their video cameras on. So it was a great uh, way to illustrate, you know, how to get around some of that uh, and invite people into the, the, the space. Um, so you work with a lot of diverse groups. Uh, you work with community people, you work with a range of people in uh, higher education. Um, and I, I wanted to get you to, to talk a bit about um, the, the diversity in higher education of those that you work with from, from STEM-oriented fields um, that tend to be more content-driven um, and um, humanities, social sciences, you know, fine arts. Um, how, what have you learned from this work with these diverse um, departments and 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 people. Um, one, one thing that we have learned over the years, and this is going to be another story to illustrate this, because we have lots of stories, um, is that, um, you know, we'll definitely talk about the different faculty groups and staff and graduate student groups that we've, we've uh, collaborated with. But I also want to point out that, um, you know, working with administrators, deans, chairs is extremely important to get support and advocacy for this work. Um, um, you know, theater of the oppressed work, interactive theater work in a higher ed institution is really is really important because you know so that so that these higher ups know what we mean by theater for change at University of Washington, for example. So the story I wanted to share was um, oh, a few years ago, um, Tika and I uh, were invited, and, and this was when I was still at University of Washington, Seattle. Um, theater for Change program was up and running and very robust. And we were invited by the, the, uh, the Dean of the College of Education to come to the Dean's meeting. So this, this, so this was Dean's from all across the three campuses of University of Washington, the medical school, um, the School of Nursing, and 
Tika, if there are other departments I'm missing, you know, just like basically the deans from all the big colleges. There was deans and chancellors, right? So about 20 at least um, yeah. from dentistry, public affairs and public health and um, other humanities departments, social work. A lot of folks were represented. So across across the disciplines to go to the team go to the dean's meeting. She had heard the dean of education invited us because she had heard about theater for change and kind of wanted to see it in action and wanted us to engage her and her colleagues in our process. Um, so we, we went, we actually had to do a little bit of rehearsal beforehand because we did a little bit of role play and form theater to depict an issue. And we engaged these deans in some forum theater um, and again, I don't remember the topic. I don't remember the issue, but what I do remember is that afterwards across the board, they were like, that was really powerful. And that was really great. And can you collaborate with us? So that Dean's meeting, that one and a half hour Dean's meeting where we did a workshop and didn't tell them about our program, but showed them <laughs> about what we did. Um, was a huge windfall because after that, we got contacted by the School of Medicine to do a series of workshops with that department, for example. So, I mean, I think that's, that's one thing that we have learned is if you can get those higher up administrators on your side and get some people who are willing to support you and to tell their colleagues that that can be... Um, a very, that can be really powerful and impactful um, for the theater program that we were running. Definitely, and to add to that, thanks Teresa for that story and re reminding us of that time. It was so powerful that the deans were all stepping in and practicing interruptions. They were practicing what they might say or do in really challenging situations that they had experienced. So. Um, we worked with them to identify some things that they had faced that had been challenging. And then we gave the opportunity to revisit those through both Forum Theater and Rainbow of Desire activities. And um, they couldn't stop. They were, you know, practicing. This is what I would say. No, 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 I would say this and brainstorming and overlapping one another. And to see them in that excited space, as Teresa mentioned, that excitement continued for a long time. And we definitely have found with Theater for Change that when an administrator is on board with what we're trying to do and they see change as not just a one-off workshop, but as a deeper experience of awareness about um, the work that needs to be done and the problems and challenges that are happening and why, and investigating those stories of why, then, um, those deans not only had the personal experience of, oh, I've done this and it was valuable to me, but they were able to frame that for the rest of their faculty. We did all school faculty and staff meetings for the School of Nursing, 100 folks. We did that for um, a smaller group, but in the School of Medicine for the whole graduate school um, staff and faculty. Um, so that when that was in place, um, people, the rest of their staff thought, oh, they're, they're not only committed to this, but they're willing to try it out. They're willing to take a risk and do something scary and practice and not be perfect and mess up publicly in front of people instead of just hiding all the mistakes. 
Yeah, and one of my favorite stories from that time too is when one of the the deans, I don't remember their uh, position, but we were going to do like a big, like all hand, it was like an all hands meeting where there were gonna be hundreds of faculty and staff and administrators where we were gonna do a workshop. And the, the head was like, you're going to this? You're not, you're, you're, you're closing down your office? We're all going to this event together. And he sent out the email to everybody. That rarely happens, I know. And it still rarely happens, but when that happens, oh, it's so, it's so transformative. And it, because for, for all stakeholders, because it showed us, you know, as the facilitators for Theater for Change that, that we were seen and that this dean and administrator saw the worth and importance of our program, as well as the benefits that would come um, come alive and come to pass if when all of his when all of his um, employees went to this event. So again, if more of that happened, that would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so, and, and, but with, with departments and faculty, yes, we have worked with a diversity of faculty and units. Um, we had a long collaboration with the Department of Chemistry, for example, at University of Washington as part of their graduate student orientation. Um, so that the graduate students who were coming in um, and being teaching assistants and working with students had a foundation for thinking about equity and what inclusive teaching could look like in their labs, in their classes, and how important it was, you know? Um, our, our you have, you, you yeah, have huge our, collaborations. Our recent uh, long-standing collaboration, um, which manifested really from one of the faculty members that attended the School of Medicine Theater for Change performance that we did was one person, one faculty member afterwards came up, he had tried an intervention in a forum theater performance. And uh, in his own words, he felt he had failed miserably. <laughs> um, and he came up and he said, well, what's the answer? What could I have done? I, I want to know, like, can you tell me? And we had this conversation. No, there is no answer. That's the that's the point is that we're just exploring the possibilities. We're just exploring the questions. It's not about the answers. Um, and um, he ended up coming back uh, several times um, to work with Theater for Change and really proposing these long-standing collaborations, one with the Department of uh, Rehab Medicine, which was a wonderful department to work with, really collaborative, really inclusive, um, where we did a series of um, focus groups from students and storytelling around belonging and also what was happening, the culture of the department in terms of how they felt included or not included. And when we did those focus groups, we gathered stories. And then our Theater for Change Ensemble um, made a play, made a play, a uh, forum theater play about that, um, those findings, and then performed that back to a group of graduate students in a separate forum theater performance, and then a group of faculty in a separate forum theater performance. And then um, a similar process with the Center for 
neurotechnology. So these are, you know, departments I never thought I would be collaborating with as a theater artist or as a um, someone doing social justice theater, and yet they've resulted in very meaningful, deep um, collaborations, workshops, and hopefully some change on a systemic level at the university. I would love to follow up about that. Um, so I'm thinking about like different scenarios. So on one hand, I'm like, oh my gosh, if we could get the faculty at my college to do forum theater, what would happen? The things that would come out, like that would be that would be amazing for, I think, especially bringing to light some of the power dynamics and sort of normative hierarchies that are um, invisible and not articulated in the room. On the other hand, I can imagine a scenario where my dean, um, a white man, compels adjunct faculty to attend a forum theater event, or the head of facilities tells the facility staff, mostly BIPOC people, to come and, and do this kind of activity and it reifying those power dynamics. Um, and of course, we have seen the explosion of like diversity education uh, in the neoliberal university and how that can that can speak the language of anti-racism or anti-sexism or liberation while um while relying on um structures of like structure normative structures of sort of employment capitalism worker boss relationships so i'm curious about how you all think about those dynamics within these settings because i'm positive that they have come up and that you all have things to say about them definitely um i think that you know some basic things that we've discovered is i mean there frequently is a conflict between who's in the actual workshop, right? Um, if we're doing a forum theater performance, we frequently, like I said, we did a graduate student performance separate from the faculty performance, very specifically with the idea of like, we want graduate students to feel that they can practice things that, you know, that they want to practice without their advisors and mentors and all these people watching them. And same with faculty groups. We want them to be able to try things out and, and fail or be, you know, take risks, um, not in front of their students um, where they might have a wall up. So sometimes it's a matter of which audience. But I think Teresa can talk more to this too, is like what, you know, theater of the oppressed and interactive theater can be used in so many ways. And forum theater is not the only way. There are so many smaller, um, meaningful ways that can give people an entry point to this. And those are great starting places too. And maybe Teresa can talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, we have been talking a lot about forum theater and that that has been the crux of Theater for Change, UW, for example. I mean, and that was, that was my first foray into Theater for Change. But because I you know, I, I, I don't work for University of Washington anymore. I moved across the country. I have a consulting practice that is 100% online. I have had to make adaptations and I still work with a lot of, I still work with a lot of departments and a lot of my contracts and collaborations are with faculty groups and uh, departments at universities. And so, because I don't have access to an acting troupe, nor do I want to build an acting troupe, I'm focusing 
I'm shifting, I've been shifting my focus on image theater and rainbow of desire techniques and how those can be used to meet the similar goals of form theater, which is to explore different just outcomes. Um, but, but instead of doing it with interventions or interruptions into, um, into an interactive play, um, we use other kinds of techniques that we can use online in Zoom. And so image theater um, fundamentally is using your body to tell a story, to define a term or a word, um, to uh, express through your body a feeling or an emotion. Um, and you can do this individually or collectively. Image theater is very, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of games and activities with image theater. And Rainbow of Desire is a theater of the oppressed technique that focuses on um, um, internalized oppression and naming that and recognizing that and giving voice to that, to inter internalized oppressions. Um, desires, um, and also recognizing the barriers and the, the walls that prevent us from behaving or acting in a certain way. So with Rainbow of Desire, we are looking at the person, again, like the, all of this is looking at the personal, the interpersonal, and the systemic, and how they, you know, come together to provide both opportunities as well as barriers and really trying to untangle that and to remove those barriers to behaving and acting in a certain way. Um, so, uh, so I've been focusing more on how to, how could we use that to, with different, you know, with, with staff, with faculty at universities in, in, in different departments, um, and not just academic departments. I've been doing some work. I've been starting to do a little bit of diversity inclusion work, not so much theater, but diversity inclusion work with thing with like HR departments, for example. Um, you know, inclusive inclusion and equity issues definitely impact HR departments on so many different levels, right? So, um, but just using just using the you know, since I, I'm not doing a play online, um, I might invite uh, my workshop group to think about the word connection and do a gesture that embodies their feeling, their current feeling about what connection means to them. And then we talk about it. You know, we can look at the gallery in the Zoom um, and even people who are off camera can still be invited to do it. They can talk about what they're doing, maybe verbally or in the chat. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm in a space now that I'm um, wanting to explore um, things outside of forum theater because of kind of my circumstances. And it, it is still very powerful to be able to invite people to use their bodies to tell a story, to, to, to get what they're feeling at this moment into their body and to show it that way. They don't even have to talk if they don't want to. So, and, 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 and again, I've been using this with a, a diversity of communities um, and it seems to um, 
be interesting in this moment because you know the faculty I work with they don't want to um, they they want to build community and they want to learn different ways of engaging so yeah I'm, I'm finding all this really inspiring uh, and to get back to uh, Lucia's question um, you know in um, when you're you're faced with this kind of neoliberal um, barriers, <laughs> then at your role as the joker, especially with a room full of deans and administrators, how do you, I mean, the and the joker is a concept, of course, from Augusto Boal, how do you see your role as the joker? The joker is hard to define. Um, and you're, you're a difficultator and all these, these things that Boal talks about, but how do you see it in your work? Because you've had some success, it, it seems like, in creating these um, connections and, and uh, communities of change. I think that the, the Joker has been described, right, as all these things, right, um, could be a facilitator, but more often is the difficultator, the one that asks the hard questions. Um, I think also part of why it was called a joker by Augusto Boal was from the joker from a deck of cards that can go so many different ways that can change, right? So it can be a trickster. It can be someone that's challenging um, the audience to think deeper or the spectators to think deeper. It can be someone that is playing devil's advocate on occasion to, to showcase how problematic what's happening is happening. I know Teresa and I frequently in workshops, um, we go through that joker um, expression where it, uh, if we're facilitating a forum theater play where we're pointing to the play when it's time for the audience to start um, intervening and making interventions of like, what is going on? Aren't you going to do something right? It's the it's the joker's responsibility to kind of nudge the odd, the spectators to nudge folks into is this really what you think to reflect back? So sometimes to be a mirror. Um, and then definitely in terms of the trickster of like, I know that there's some um, Boal um, and great theater of the oppressed techniques of when you're showing a problematic play and if the play is so bad and nobody is making an intervention, then you can play tricks where make the actors do it even more oppressive and beyond, you know, I mean, it's problematic, but at the same time, it's like, oh, you think this is okay? Is it okay that this is happening? Um, so that I see that the Joker's role is to nudge sometimes gently and, and really to um, feel the moment of what can they say that sometimes other people in the room can't say um, and usually um, we're in a unique position that we're not from within a department or we're not from within a group that we're visiting. And so we might be able to unearth and um, explore or dig um, to something that's really important that we might have heard in a conversation when while we prepared um, and question in a way um, where people hear us in a different way. Um, so I think that's an opportunity for sure. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, you know, the um, depending on what you're jokering, like I could say that I have been jokering um, some really interesting experimental image theater and Rainbow of Desire games recently, and um, the whole the whole thing about being the questioner 
And asking questions that get people to think deeply and reflect, that is another important role um, for a joker. So for example, I facilitated online, um, in, like an image theater, uh, machine, doing machine work. So machine work is where um, I, gave, I gave my group a word and I invited them to create a machine, a group machine where each person added to the machine with a repetitive sound and gesture. And I think I gave them the word um, pandemic. So the machine of the pandemic, it was very recent, it was just a few weeks ago. And so um, they made the machine and then I paused them, I paused the actors um, and I asked them, different questions. So I called out their name. I might be like, hey, Jane, what are you doing? And say this in an I statement. I might ask them questions like, what are you doing? What do you need? Who do you need support from? What is happening? What are you afraid of? Um, what are you feeling? Um, and so afterwards, I asked the actors to describe their, how they, you know, what that experience was like. And I asked the spect actors who were not in the machine to also talk about what they observed. And um, what I found from that experience was that some, they, they enjoyed the questions that activated the machine, you know, because the machine is just noises and, and, and gestures but to give voice to the machine, to have them say, an inner, like to say that the cogs of the machine to say an inner, inner dialogue, inner monologue or something that they're feeling brought it to life, you know? And, and you can do that on Zoom. And, and so that questioning, those, those questions can be very um, important in bringing about um, ideas and maybe possibilities for change. I remember taking a course with Tina when I was a first year in college and we made a machine. I think it was about, it was about like homelessness in Atlanta or something about like anti-poverty work in the city. Um, that is one of my first memories from college. So I appreciate you bringing that in. Um, I can't believe that we've already been talking for an hour. Um, before we ask our traditional last question of what we're all reading and listening to and consuming that we want to recommend to others, I just want to ask um, Tika and Teresa, do you have anything that you want to add that we haven't asked you that you feel like is really important to get on the table before we, um, before we sadly say goodbye for now? I didn't, oh, Tika, you want to go? Oh. Um, I was going to just tell a brief story about something that you um, all had asked for stories and this story still sits with me and is one of the reasons why I'm so interested and keep be, keep coming back to this work. Um, Teresa and I were co-teaching a graduate course um, called, um, I don't know what it was called at that time. Um, do you remember Teresa? <laughs> it's changed names. No. Right now it's called Acting Up, Teaching Theater for Change. And um, in the course, um, we do a lot of group work. 
um, where students co-write um, forum theater plays um, based on their lived experiences and an issue, a social justice topic that they want to explore. And we were in one of the early stages of group work where groups were sharing stories with one another. And Teresa and I are pretty mindful of, you know, you have this much time to talk in your groups and to tell stories and choose which story you want to tell, but this might become part of the playmaking process. And um, we had given time warnings and all sorts of things. And this particular group was composed, I think, of um, three folks that identified as white and um, one student that identified um, as um, a student of color. And in their story sharing, um, you know, they had all shared long stories and they had all gone um, and then time ran out. And after that time, the three white students had all told their stories, but the student of color had not gotten to her story yet. And um, the group then had to show that the next prompt in our activity was to show to make some image theater to show something of the topic that you've been um, exploring in your storytelling and what you might want to make a play about. And um, that group worked, um, had a really hard moment where um, this particular student shared with the group, you know, I was silenced. You all took all the time, even though there was time reminders, you all took up all the space. To me, what this felt like, and she sculpted the image, was that I was lying on the ground and somebody was standing on my neck, that I was being silenced, that I was my stories were being pushed down and that I had no voice and no place to speak. And the whole group, I mean, there was tears, there was, also, there was a lot of reflection, um, but when they chose to show the image, they showed that image, they created her image that she had sculpted. And they were able to pause and reflect and take the time that they needed to actually talk about something real that was happening in the moment. And the image theater in that moment helped them to work through and address that moment to investigate what happened for the white people to be like, why were we taking up so much space and time? Why did this happen even with lots of reminders and this course is about anti-racism and all of this, and yet it still happened. And so that was able um, to, to congeal that group and have them come together and actually brought them closer and they developed a beautiful, great play and that they changed part of their process in that moment with the use of image theater. Well, that's one story I wanted to share about how that can be used and how powerful it can be. And I wanted to add to that, because um, I was co-teaching that with you, Tika, right? That, that, um, that doing it through image theater rather than talking it to death, like talking it, talking about it probably wouldn't have been as visceral and as impactful as doing it in your body and doing it as a group doing image theater. So that is, that is um, a tool, like image theater can be a tool in that particular class. And then the story that I wanted to provide, why I want to il illustrate that that it doesn't matter what discipline you teach in, um, I would encourage you to think about how you could incorporate and integrate different embodied techniques for your students who are inevitably different kinds of learners and learn in different ways. So the story that I wanted to share was when I was teaching in social work, um, I was teaching a bachelor's in social work class and you know, in social work, we use a lot of case studies 
to learn about concepts and learn about practices and theories and, and interventions. And one day I decided, you know, we we're going to, in one of my classes, they all read a case. And instead of the, the quote unquote traditional way of reading a case, talking about it in small groups, and then reporting it back to the rest of the class, um, what you talked about, I um, had the, each group read the case, discuss it, and create two images, two snapshots, two tableaus, so no talking, one that depicted the problem and one that depicted a potential solution to the problem that was featured in the case study. And so each group did their two tableaus, and then we talked about what we observed, and then we engaged in, um, you know, like uh, strategy development to address the problem as, as a class. And after that class, one of the students who happened to be a student of color and an immigrant student came up to me and said, thank you. Thank you for doing that activity because you know I am a quiet student and I'm still working on my English and I'm not confident in my English, but being able to contribute to my group like that and to act it out instead of having to talk about it made me feel included and made me feel like I could contribute. And I will always remember that feedback because your students are diverse. They come from different backgrounds they have different ways of learning and to infuse a little like a little bit of kinesthetic image theater etc can make a huge difference for this diversity of learners so that's just what i wanted to that's the story that i wanted to close with oh thank you so much for sharing these stories and and giving us uh new ways to be in the classroom in our bodies and our whole selves um i want to switch to the end where we talk about you know just some things that we're reading watching listening to um encounter in the world so uh lucia why don't you start us off what am I listening to? Man, I'm deep into writing this chapter about, in my book, about um, microfinance and um, its history. And today I learned that one of the biggest microfinance institutions in the world, which is started as the sort of anti-communist development organization on the model of the Peace Corps, it was funded by oil companies and um, private interests in the 1960s and then it became this small lender trying to get people mostly in Venezuela and Brazil to be micro entrepreneurs. They coined that term. It's called Acción International. I found a note, a handwritten note in an archive, um, archival source that hadn't gone back to in like four years. I must have missed it the first time that said Acción, which is the name of this, of this network, which publicly stands for Americans for Community Cooperation in Other Nations um, was invented while the founder was drunk in a bathroom and it was Americans concerned about communism in other nations. So sometimes the first acronym tells you the truth and scribbled notes make their way into the future. So anyway, I've just been, that's been the nugget that I've been thinking about. Um, and it was, it was a, it was an, Part of the way, part of the reason we talk about pedagogy, right, is that um, these do-gooders, these internationalist do-gooders, I'm putting up scare quote with my fingers, 
thought that they were bringing some sort of enlightening gospel around the world. And it was not, in fact, liberatory at all. It was more mode of social control. And so um, I was thinking about that as uh, it was a contrast to some of what we're talking about today. Teresa, do you want to go next? Well, I will admit that I, something that I'm watching because, you know, all radical pedagogues need a break is um, I'm watching Bridgerton on Netflix as my escape. Um, and I, of course, I have, I'm actually applying diversity, equity, and inclusion concepts to my viewing of Bridgerton. So, but that's another story. Um, and what I'm reading and what I wanted to share is that I'm reading a book called You Belong, A Call for Connection. It's by Sebene Selassie and, and um, she is a New York-based um, teacher and writer. And um, I've actually listened to her, a lot of her guided meditations as well. And so she has this book called You Belong and it's all about belonging. And I just finished the section about the call to embodiment. So it's very good timing in my universe right now. And what I like, and I like what she says about, you know, we don't find belonging by thinking about it in our heads. We can only experience belonging in these bodies. Oh, that's nice. Thank yeah. So it's a wonderful book. It just came out um, late last year. So that's what I'm reading and getting inspired by. Well, I'm watching Bridgerton too, so mostly for the fashion and the settings. All right, Tika, you want to share what you're encountering? Sure. I am. I have uh, two young kiddos at home, uh, a seven-year-old and then a one-year-old baby, and I'm still spending a lot of time um, nursing my child. And so, audiobooks and <laughs> headphones are key. And so uh, sometimes I feel that it's a radical act to be um, listening to um, what I'm listening to and doing the labor of mothering and all of those things um, at the same time. So some of the things that I'm listening to um, when I want um, good laughs and a lot of deep feelings, I'm listening to Meaty by Samantha Irby, who is just amazing. And um, that nourishes me on many, many levels. And then in terms of um, a book that I just started listening to on audio um, is Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. And with my daughter, I'm reading a great book called Ways to Make Sunshine by Renee Watson. And um, it's a great book for young kiddos between kindergarten and fifth grade. And we're really enjoying that. Great. Um, well, you inspired me to pull off the shelf uh, an old um, book that I decided to reread. Um, and, you know, the whole, th everything you do sort of um, uh, makes me have to come to terms with what I do in the classroom. Uh, and Paulo Freire's dictum, is it education for domestication or freedom, right? And so I encountered this woman, uh, Diane Marino, um, this book is probably out of print, but it's called Wild, <clears throat> Wild Garden, Art, Education, and the Culture of Resistance. And she was in Toronto and worked with the Doris Marshall Institute 
and also that became the Catalyst Institute for a while. And they, they were an organization like Project South, the Highlander Center and others that did, uh, that do, well did, <laughs> social change um, and worked with labor unions and things. And she did art um, in community and uh, I'll show you a few of these um, uh, and did embodied uh, learning and workshops in Toronto. Uh, died too young of cancer. Um, but uh, one of her art pieces, she says, I think most of the education that happens in universities is domesticating and maintains current political relations. It's not really aimed at changing very much. That's not my goal. In fact, I would like to change things quite deeply and dramatically. And I so appreciate the work that, that you're doing because it does change things. Um, and it, it, I mean, it changes, you know, the, the faculty who may be resistant, who participate in it um, are changed by it, you, you know? And, and so thank you for sharing these stories and um, um, the, the name game and, and everything else. And I know uh, you often do workshops online and um, we will put links to, to all of that on the website. Um, so thank you again for being on Nothing Never Happens. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our interview with Embody Change, Teresa Ronquilio and Tika Sears. We had a great time learning from them and practicing theater of the oppressed in the online classroom. And we will provide links to their workshops and consultations on our website. We'd like to thank our awesome audio engineer, Aaliyah Harris. Our intro music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music is from Acrasis, Mark McKee, Beats Trumpet, Max Bowen, Raps and Guitar. This selection is called And We Out from the Children's Singing in Hell album, and it's available on bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. I wish the world wasn't totally impenetrable. There's a dick joke in there somewhere, but let it go. I'm at the self-help seminar ruining everything. Of course you fell in love with confusion, you fucking lemming. Lemmings don't actually commit mass suicide, and the stigma surrounding mental illness is toxic. But if you feel blue inside, you gotta rate it on a scale of 1 to 5. Social scientists can mine for depression like it's pyrite. You only discover your poor vision in hindsight. Took my parents' newspaper clippings off the fridge, put them in a plastic bag. Jackson Pollock clippings taught me that Birch is beautiful. Jackson Pollock clippings taught me that Birch is beautiful. Jackson Pollock clippings taught me that Birch is beautiful. Lesson alert, and this isn't my confession to make, but you all have to sit and take it because what's real and fake when we have polluted ponds and clean artificial lakes? What a naive juxtaposition. I'm an idiot for writing it, and I'm sorry for people who listen.